From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Wade Menezes. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Tremendous. A tremendous. A tremendous dude. Hey, let's try that again. Okay, we're going to start the music over again, Father Wade, and start this thing all over again. <laughs> Welcome to EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. Oh, Father, Father, and Father. I, and I'm not even in studio. I know. That's, it's, you know, the, 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 the miles do not, do not dull the luster of your presence, and it's intimidating to us, Father, so we have to try to muddle on through. That's Father Wade Menezes. I'm Jack Williams. It's EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. We're talking faith, family, and fellowship. If you'd like to be part of the program, it's really not as intimidating as it sounds. Pick up the phone and give us a call. The number is 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one 205 Two seven one two nine eight five, and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. And uh, if you'd like to send us an email, we'd be happy to receive that. The email address is openline at ewtn dot com. As I mentioned, I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, the aforementioned Father Wade Menezes, how are you? I'm doing great, Jack, and I'm getting ready to celebrate Ascension Sunday instead of Ascension Thursday. On uh, Tuesday. This- <laughs> on Tuesday. Well, we'll talk about it on Tuesday. But uh, the 40th day after Easter is this coming Thursday, traditionally uh, Ascension Thursday, uh, which some dioceses in the United States are holding true to. But most dioceses uh, transfer it to the uh, near Sunday, the neighboring Sunday. So that's what our diocese is doing, as well as the Diocese of Green Bay this weekend, where I will be preaching at the Marian Conference at the Shrine of Our Lady of Champion. We will celebrate Ascension uh, Thursday on Ascension Sunday. So I want to talk a little bit about the Ascension today. And I love this feast day of the second person of the Most Holy Trinity because it says so much about what awaits our own glorious and transfigured bodies for the saved. It's just a beautiful, beautiful feast. The Feast of the Ascension of our Lord commemorates the bodily ascent of Jesus into heaven 40 days after his glorious resurrection from the dead. Having completed his earthly mission, Jesus returned to heaven and to his heavenly Father with his eternal human body. In this way, he opens up the gates of heaven to all of us humans with a human body and shows us precisely what awaits our own glorious human bodies. Thus, the Feast of the Ascension is, for all Christians, a symbol of great hope because it reminds us that Christ sits at his Father's right hand in his human nature and in his human body and soul composite, interceding on our behalf. And as members of Christ's risen body, the church, Jack, we 
await the day when we too will be able to enjoy eternal happiness by his side in heaven and our own souls and bodies reunited after Christ's second coming. Following New Testament accounts, we celebrate Ascension Day on the 40th day of the Easter season, which is always a Thursday, as I said, while some ecclesiastical provinces, which uh, are clusters of dioceses in the United States, have moved the observance to the following Sunday. A few have kept it on Thursday. Luke chapter 24, verses 50 and 51 says, Then he led them out as far as Bethany, raised his hands, and blessed them. As he blessed them, he parted from them and was taken up to heaven. After his resurrection into heaven, we know that Jesus spent 40 days with his disciples. During that time, his glorified resurrected body was veiled under the ordinary appearance of humanity. But after his final words to his disciples, such as in Acts chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, the New Testament reports, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Notice the word ascension, Jack, is an active verb, right? Whereas the word assumption, which we use to describe the Blessed Virgin Mary's entering into heaven, body, and soul, is a passive verb. So we say that our Lord Jesus Christ ascended by his own power as God, the second divine person of the Trinity, united, of course, with the first person and the third person, the Father and the Holy Spirit, respectively, where Mary did not. Uh, God uh, assumed Mary into heaven. Uh, So the ascension testifies that after Jesus' human nature, henceforth knows no bounds, right? And that says something for us and about us who remain faithful to him. The ascension testifies that after Jesus, human nature henceforth knows no bounds. It is enthroned at the right hand of the Father in the communion of the Holy Spirit. This says something great about human dignity, uh, of, of the human person made in God's own image and likeness, and the greatness that the human person uh, is called to. Pope St. Louis the Great gives us an awesome quote. He says, With all due solemnity today, we are commemorating that day of which our own poor human nature was carried up in Christ above all the hosts of heaven, above all the ranks of angels, beyond the highest heavenly powers to the very throne of God the Father. It is upon this ordered structure of divine acts that we have been firmly established. Thus the ascension, as St. John Paul II says, indicates the goal, the very goal, to which personal and universal history is hastening toward. Heavenly glory, eternal beatitude, uh, the beatific vision, we could say. Again, John Paul II, now saint, says that the ascension indicates the very goal to which personal and universal history is hastening toward. Heavenly glory, eternal beatitude, the beatific vision, or heaven for all eternity. Pope Francis says the ascension of Jesus into heaven acquaints us with this deeply consoling reality on our earthly journey. In Christ, true God and true man, our humanity was indeed taken to God. This is a truth that cannot be denied. Our humanity was taken to God. Christ opened up the path to us, and we follow Christ as our head. If we entrust our life to him in the here and now, If we let ourselves be guided by him, we are certain to be safe in his hands, in the hands of our Savior. And also, thirdly, a great quote from Pope Benedict XVI. This is why, as Benedict XVI once wrote, it would be a mistake to interpret the ascension as only the temporary absence of Christ from the world until he comes again at his second coming. 
No, we don't look at it that way. Rather, we go to heaven even now in prayer frequently to the extent that we go to Jesus Christ and enter into him and partake of God's sanctifying grace, especially through the sacramental economy, frequent communion and frequent confession, especially the only two sacraments of the seven that can be received over and over again, right? So again, Pope Benedict XVI, he's very wise here. He says it would be wrong to look at the ascension uh, as, as an event that leaves us with a temporary absence of Christ from the world until he comes again at his second coming. No, not at all. We go to heaven even now with a strong spiritual life, a strong prayer life, a strong sacramental life. It's the chronos, the, 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 the chronological time of the human person, united with the kairos, the divine time of God, and the kairos and the chronos unite huh, into the sacrament of the present moment. Benedict says, we go to heaven to the extent that we go to Jesus regularly and frequently and enter into him. And we know that the Eucharist is the source and summit of the entire Christian life while we are now living in the Kronos, not yet deceased. And so we look to these, uh, these great, beautiful truths. And remember, our Lord ascended, we've already said, 40 days after Easter. And remember a few weeks back ago during Lent, Jack, we talked about the importance of 40. The reign of the great flood, the great deluge lasted 40 days. Moses fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, Moses was atop Mount Sinai receiving the law for 40 days and 40 nights. The Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years. Uh, the manna rained down on the Israelites to feed them for 40 years. Uh, the prophet Elijah walked 40 days and 40 nights to reach the mountain of God, Horeb. We know that Jesus uh, fasted for 40 days and 40 nights to prepare for his public ministry. He ascended now into heaven 40 days after his glorious resurrection from the dead. What's my point here? Well, it's the church's point that 40 means something. So it is that scripturally speaking, 40 means something. It it appears in the Bible some 157 times, depending on what translation you're looking at. And it brings to mind the number 40 in Scripture, both Old and New Testament. Uh, such important qualities as repentance, newness, preparation, new task, new work, self-examination, transformation, task fulfillment, the beginning of a new task, escape from bondage or slavery, such as from sin, nourishment and growth, uh, for example, in the spiritual life, and finally, personal fulfillment. And this is what the ascension shows us uh, 40 days after his resurrection, because he's now been ascended to be seated definitively at the right hand of the Father and shows us what simultaneously awaits our own humanity. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Join a deeper conversation about the most consequential issues facing Catholics today on EWTN News In-Depth with Monse Alvarado. And you can get EWTN News In-Depth sent right to your email inbox with details on every, each week's show. Just go to EWTN.com slash In-Depth and sign up today. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. A couple of lines open for you and plenty of time for your calls. First up today is Joe in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania watching us on Roku or listening to us on Roku. Joe, you are on with Father Wade. Thank you very much. My question is, if somebody's Catholic and they they become Protestant, do they have to return to Catholic Church to be saved? Great question. Uh, it depends on what they know about the Catholic faith, the Catholic Church, with her four marks, one holy Catholic and apostolic, being indeed the one true Church founded by Jesus Christ, and whether or not they are willfully, with purposeful intent, leaving her. The Catechism is very clear, quoting uh, Lumen Gentium, uh, chapter 8 through 15, or excuse me, paragraph numbers 8 through 15 is where you can find this. Uh, prior to Vatican II, it was phrased, uh, uh, there is no salvation outside the Church. Uh, the positive phrasing of that is, where there is salvation, there is the Catholic Church. Uh, there's both visible membership and invisible membership. For the one who was a baptized Catholic and left the Church, did they know that she was the one true Church and purposefully, with willful intent, leave her? And if they did, with, with malice, uh, there is no salvation outside the Church. You want to look at number 846 of the Catechism, especially, which spells this out. That's the Universal Catechism. Uh, how are we to understand this affirmation that outside the Church there is no salvation, often repeated by the Church Fathers? Reformulated positively, it means that all salvation comes from Christ the Head, through the church, which is his body, right? Lumen Gentium 14 says the following, basing itself on scripture and tradition, the council teaches that the church, a pilgrim now on earth, is necessary for salvation. The one church is the mediator and the way of salvation. Uh, the person is, he is to present to us in his body, which is the church, Christ. He himself explicitly asserted the necessity of faith and baptism, and thereby affirmed at the same time the necessity of the church, which men enter through baptism as through a door. Hence, they could not be saved who, knowing that the Catholic Church was founded as necessary by God through Christ, would refuse either to enter it or remain in it. So that's number 846 of the Catechism. It's very clear. It's quoting Lumen Gentium from the Second Vatican Council, uh, number 14, and, uh, and also Matthew 16, 16, and John 3, verse 5. Uh, so a lot of this has to do with purposeful, willful intent. Uh, it's, it's like what 1037 says about God predestining no one to go to hell. Uh, for someone to go to hell, obviously, would mean in a state of mortal sin, it would have to mean that they, with willful, purposeful intent, did not want to confess that mortal sin. So I want to I urge you to take a look at that section in the Universal Catechism, Joe. I just read you number 846. It's with a heading at the top, Outside the Church There Is No Salvation. But it begins earlier in the section with uh, the, the second mark of the church, one, excuse me, the third mark of the church, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Each of the four marks are broken down in the catechism. And this is from the section on the third mark of the church, Catholic, 
one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And of course, Catholic means universal. That's why the discussion of the Catholic who leaves the church versus the Catholic who stays in the church, the non-Catholic who is saved versus the non-Catholic who is not saved, this is why it's under the section of the third mark, precisely because Catholic means universal, and Christ founded the bride, his bride, the church, for all, huh? Uh, for all Gentiles to join her. So, uh, and so we want to be able to, to decipher and semper distingue, always distinguish or always make distinctions. St. Thomas Aquinas would say in regards to willful intent and uh, intellect, what the person knows about the church one, being the one true church. So I, I urge you to read uh, beginning with number uh, 846 in the Catechism. And the end of that section takes you to 856, 856. So it's about, what, 11 paragraphs, 10 paragraphs? So that will help you out there. And then also you're going to see a lot of cross-references there to Lumen Gentium, which is the dogmatic constitution on the Church from the Second Vatican Council, which closed in 1965. You're going to find references there from Lumen Gentium 8 all the way through 15. Uh, because that's where this is addressed as well. For example, on, at the Good Friday Passion Service, we have those beautiful uh, 10 or 11, I think it's 10 general intercessions where all the different members of humanity are mentioned, and we're praying for all of them, including the non-Christians, including Christians that are outside the church, uh, including Catholics themselves, those who do not know God at all. Uh, we pray for all these 10 major groups precisely because the church is a mother. This is why we call her bride, the bride of Christ. She's a mother, and she calls all to her bosom to be fed. Uh, this is why I love the, the beautiful image of the pelican on the facade of an altar in a, inside of a Catholic church. What's the mother pelican doing? She's pecking at her own breast, drawing her own flesh and blood with her babies around her in the nest, and, and, and to cause even more pain... <laughs> The babies are picking at her breast where she's drawing her own flesh and blood, fresh flesh, to feed them. Why? Because she refuses to leave her nest for fear that predators will come and kill her babies. So she would rather stay in the nest and, and peck at and beat at her own breast and, and draw her own flesh and blood for her babies to literally pick from her to be fed than to have them be killed by predators. This is an image of, of Holy Mother Church, the Bride of Christ, feeding her children, all of us, with her sacraments. It's an ancient symbol. It's often seen on the front of a, a facade, the front part of, of the altar, whether a freestanding altar in a church or even the high altar uh, in the more older churches. And it's a beautiful, beautiful image of the church as mother, feeding all of us through her sacramental economy, which I mentioned in the springboard topic in talking about the Ascension. Does that help you out, Joe? Thanks, Joe. We appreciate the I phone call I think we call might have today. lost Joe there. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Next up is Kathy, a first-time caller in Chicago, Illinois, watching us on YouTube today. Kathy, you're on with Father Wade. Hi, Father Wade. Christ is risen. Hey, hallelujah. He is risen, truly. Hallelujah. Indeed, he is risen. Um, my question today is, um, I, I would like an explanation about um, when Jesus resurrected, resurrection morning, Mary Magdalene met him in the garden, but Jesus told her not to touch him 
for he didn't yet ascend to his father. Yet about a week later, when he meets up with the apostles and specifically with Thomas, Thomas was allowed to touch or actually put his hand into the side wound of Jesus. And I was just wondering why those differences? Well, because Thomas was a doubting situation. I always joke with my people when I preach to them on the doubting Thomas scene of Scripture. I like to say that the sacred author left out a line when Jesus says, Thomas, come here now and and touch me. There's a slight pause, and Jesus says, now, move it. I want you to believe that I'm truly here, you know. So, uh, but because he doubted, he doubted. He, unfortunately, he had to have that happen to him to believe. He, he needed it. And remember what he says earlier in the upper room when Jesus hasn't yet appeared with Thomas present, but he appeared when Thomas was not present. Thomas later comes, and the apostles tell him about Jesus having come, and he says, unless... I put my finger in the nail marks of his hands and place my hand into his side, I will not believe. Okay, so when Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene on Easter morning, he cautions her that she should not touch him because he has not yet gone to the Father. And, and you're right, the following week or so in the upper room, he invites Thomas to put his hands into his wounds, and, and that's the difference. Thomas um, uh, uh, apparently needed that touching, literally, capital L, uh, to be proven in his weakness that Jesus indeed was resurrection, was resurrected. Um, and so this is the reason where, where Mary Magdalene didn't doubt. She had no doubt. And Jesus uh, didn't have any reason to let her touch him in his glorified risen state. Uh, you know, I will not leave you again because, you know, be, be not in a hurry to touch me. You shall have all this, this pleasure type thing. Uh, I will remain with you for some time, 40 days before my ascension. It's, it's like he's telling her these words. He's telling Mary Magdalene these words. Instead, now announce my resurrection to my apostles, and you shall see me again. Uh, this is the interpretation most modern commentators put on this place. She doesn't doubt. She has no, no reason for Christ to say, go ahead and touch me. He's simply telling her, I have not yet ascended to my father, Mary Magdalene. Do not touch me. I will not leave you again. Uh, be not in a hurry to touch me now. Uh, you shall have all this pleasure of my presence for the next 40 days. Uh, I will remain with you now for some time before my ascension. Rather, instead, uh, announce my resurrection to my apostles. Go to them now, and, and you shall indeed see me again. Uh, okay, so, so others, too, suppose that Mary Magdalene imagined that he was risen from the dead uh, to live with men as before, like Lazarus, and, and he wanted to tell her this was not the case. He addresses these words to her to disabuse her of this notion that he's simply another Lazarus case. Um, he's, he's risen, yes, like Lazarus was, but he's soon to die again. By him being able to say to her, do not touch me, I have not yet ascended to my father, he's simultaneously telling her, my death was my death. And this isn't a simple Lazarus re-erection type of a thing like you witnessed with Lazarus. No, my death was my death. This, I am now in my transfigured, glorified state, and I will be with you for these next 40 days, uh, and then I will go to my Father. So he wanted to, to dis, disfuse or diffuse any uh, uh, wrong notions that she had about him as another Lazarus case, where Thomas needed the actual confirmation of his doubt. Does that, does that help you out? 
It, yes, it does. It does. Thank you very much. You're most welcome. Thank you. And a great question. I especially love the second reason uh, why he tells Mary Magdalene that, that being that he wants to diffuse the Lazarus notion. I think that's very, very important because they had witnessed several people being raised from the dead by Jesus before his own crucifixion, right? Uh, the widow's son at Nain, Jairus' daughter, the centurion's servant, uh, uh, Lazarus himself, uh, and he wanted to diffuse that, that notion. Great question. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Julian Georgia, and we've got plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Grab one of these open phone lines at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Plenty of time for your calls. As advertised, next up is Julie in the great state of Georgia, a first-time caller listening on The Quest. Julie, you are on with Father Wade. Hi. um, I wanted to find out um, a young person who all their life was pretty much an alcoholic and then died at a early age in their 40s, and they were never faithfully, I guess, to their religion, where when they pass, where do they go to heaven, or what happens to them? Well, regardless of what their situation is, Julie, the, the question is, do they die in a state of mortal sin, purposefully unrepentant or not? Because that's the only thing that sends a person to hell, as the Catechism teaches us in number 1037. Uh, it says this, God predestines no one to go to hell. For this, a willful turning away from God, a mortal sin, is necessary, and persistence in it until the end. In the Eucharistic liturgy of the Church and in the daily prayers of her faithful, the Church actually constantly implores the mercy of God, who does not want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. It's from the Eucharistic prayer. Uh, We even say this in Eucharistic prayer 1, the Roman canon, Father, accept this offering from your whole family, grant us your peace in this life, save us from final damnation, and count us among those you have chosen. So, not only does the church not want anyone to go to hell, she prays for that intention constantly that nobody will go to hell, that, that souls will not go to hell. And indeed, to go to hell has to be by one's own doing. So in the case of a drunken state, um, where was the person at in their faith life when they were sober? Uh, you know, uh, were they maliciously staying away from faith and a relationship with God while they were sober? Or were they trying to make some amends with God uh, in their sobriety in between the drunken bouts? You're asking a loaded question that's that's a case of casuistry, really, case-by-case basis. The fact is, we know exactly how a person goes to hell by their own doing, if that's the case. All right, so the question you're asking about drunkenness can be the same thing asked about the lust addict. It can be the same thing asked about the person who has a strong propensity to unjust anger. It could be asked about the same thing that, that, that's the person who is a, a chronic kleptomaniac, a, a stealer of goods. Um, it can be asked about any particular issue, dependency or addiction, okay? Not just the drunkard. Uh, also, it's worth telling you here that, that in regards to sinning, 
uh, mortally or venially, the will has to be involved. You have to will it in order for it to happen, uh, either a venial sin or mortal sin. So uh, in a truly drunken stupor, one does not have full uh, use of their will because of the alcohol content that's inebriated them. So the greater sin there is that they did not make amends to overcome the addiction during moments of sobriety. That's probably the greater sin in that regard. So these are just a few elements that that have to come into play when you ask such a question, you know, what happens to a faithless drunkard when they die? Uh, you know, we know what, what sends a person to hell by their own doing, a purposeful, unrepentant mortal sin. We know what sends a person to heaven directly when they die, and that is that all temporal punishment for already forgiven mortal and venial sin has been atoned for. And we know thirdly and lastly what sends a person to purgatory, to be purged, purged first uh, before they can enter heaven, and that is that the fact that when they do die, they have not yet atoned for the temporal punishment due to their already uh, forgiven mortal and venial sin. So this is why this is the day of salvation. This is the, the day of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. Um, this is the day of salvation. This is the day of the Lord. Uh, uh, Psalm uh, 118, I think, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The, the time is now. The, the time of the Kairos and the Kronos converging, the time of God and the time of man, are right now to partake in it. In a, in a state of his sanctifying grace, which makes us actual participators in God's own divine life, in a state of grace with no known mortal sin on our soul. So we want to be able to confess our sins now and atone for them now so that we can, uh, through the mercy and grace of God, at, uh, attain his plan A for us, which is to enter heaven immediately when we die. Great question uh, so much, Julie. Thank you so much for that. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open lines at 833-288-3986. Linda's in Chicago listening on WNDZ Radio. Linda, you're on with Father Wade. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Actually, uh, this is my first year celebrating the solemnity of the Ascension of Jesus as a confirmed Catholic. I was just, uh, I had my first communion and confirmation this past Easter vigil. Woohoo! Um, oh, beautiful, Linda. <laughs> Beautiful. Congratulations from, from the entire oh, Open Line Tuesday family. Congratulations, <laughs> and we mean that with, with great heartfelt uh, celebratory attitude for you. We love it. Thank you. Uh, I, I just uh, wanted to share that uh, my grandpa's name is actually Ascension. Uh, he was born around the, the Holy Day, and um, I guess part Beautiful. of the Mexican tradition of uh, my grandparents was to whatever day uh, their children were, were born, they would name them uh, based on, like, uh, what saint saint was celebrated that day, or, or in this case, in my grandpa's case, uh, uh, the solemnity. So I just wanted to share that. How beautiful is that? How beautiful is that? What a beautiful uh, tradition in, in the Mexican heritage, as you say. And I know other others do that as well. Uh, uh, maybe not as as uh, constant as the Mexican tradition is to do that, but uh, others do it as well, including my own Portuguese tradition. So that's that's wonderful. Just an absolute wonderful uh, thing for the family to do for the newborn. And uh, is he still living, your grandpa? Yes, he'll be turning, I believe, 85. Oh, praise God. And do you live near him? He actually lives in Mexico. Okay, okay. Well, great. Well, I don't know if he uses email or not, but be sure to email him on the Ascension and tell him happy patronal feast day on the Ascension, okay? <laughs> I will do. Thank you. Uh, okay, God, God bless you. you, and thank you for a great witness call, and congratulations again for being confirmed in the Church. Uh, Linda, are you, are you still there? Yes. 
What, what inspired you? First of all, if you don't mind telling me your age, how old are you? Um, I just turned 23. Okay, here's my question. Usually in the United States, uh, we receive confirmation between 8th grade and 10th grade. There's some dioceses do it a little earlier, but somewhere between 8th grade and 10th grade is the norm. That would be between ages 13 and 15. You just decided to turn uh, to be confirmed at age 23, which I think is just fantastic and, and awesome in the truest sense of the word. Um, what inspired you uh, five to seven years after the norm in this country to finally get confirmed? What what was the the impetus for you, the, the main catapult for you to say, you know what, I am going to enter the confirmation class, and I am going to get confirmed as a young adult Catholic. I want this for myself. What made you finally do that? What clicked? What happened in your life? Was it a person you met, a fellow Catholic that inspired you? Was it just some reading you were doing? Are you a member of a good, solid parish that inspired you through a series of homilies that you heard about, entering the Church uh, more fully with that third sacrament of initiation, along with baptism and Eucharist? What was it? Uh, well, I, I grew up fairly uh, secularly. I was baptized as an infant, but grew up pretty much secularly. Um, but I think what gravitated me towards uh, coming back to the faith was uh, uh, reading uh, specifically these quotes from the Bible, uh, such as... Uh, I am the way and the truth and the life. Uh, no one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, or like, um, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that uh, uh, Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, reading those really uh, it gravitated me towards the faith and just uh, like continuous research, research of uh, that Jesus Christ is the truth. And uh, th- those types of things really uh, uh, just like attracted me to the faith, that, that there is such thing as truth. Beautiful, beautiful. And were you already uh, going regularly to a certain parish each Sunday for Mass? Um, I, I, I have been for a year uh, while I waited for RCIA to start, uh, but okay. that was mostly it. Great. And then uh, when you were around age seven, around the age of reason, did you receive first con- reconciliation, first confession, and first communion at that time? I received, uh, uh, I did my first confession and first communion also this year. Oh, beautiful. So you received confession, excuse me, you received Eucharist and confirmation uh, at 23 this past Easter, but you were baptized as an infant. Yes. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, you now have all three sacraments of initiation, which means what? That word initiation. It means you are fully, fully a Catholic in membership. While there's more room for you to grow in grace, there's no more room for you to grow in membership. The fullness of membership is with those three sacraments. That's what sacraments of initiation, quote-unquote, means. You are fully initiated into the Church. Baptism, Confirmation and Holy Eucharist, you now have all three. Those are the three sacraments of initiation. And as you know, the two sacraments of union, which are at the service of communion to the populaces throughout the world, are matrimony and holy orders. Matrimony gives physical life. Holy orders gives spiritual life. And then lastly, the two sacraments of healing, the sacrament of confession and the sacrament of the anointing of the sick. So three sacraments of initiation, two sacraments of union, and two sacraments of healing. Never forget that, and uh, God bless you, uh, Linda, on your continued growth in your Catholic faith. Thank you so much for your call, a great witness call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Kay is in northern Kentucky listening on Ave Maria Radio's app. Kay, you are on with Father Wade. 
Hi, Father Wade. Um, I have a question. It's on Mark chapter 5, verse 39, where it's concerning Jairus' daughter, and Jesus says, do not be concerned because she's not dead. She's just asleep. And just a little while ago, you said that Jairus' daughter was a person that was resurrected from the dead. So I'm not sure if it's a translation. Was she, did she die or was she just, just like in a coma? And then the last part of that is he instructed um, the family to provide something for her to eat. And what was the significance of him instructing them to feed her? Great question. So uh, Jairus's daughter, the widow's son at Nain, uh, Lazarus himself, um, and the centurion's servant, uh, we are told in Scripture that they had died, and Jesus resurrected them back to life. In other words, that death was not their final death. Like Jesus's one and only, and it was final death, was the one on the cross. Not so these four individuals. He brought them back to life, and they were meant to die again. Why were they brought back to life, these four individuals, these singular times in Scripture? To show the God-man's power over life, so that uh, it would show clearly that he's of divine origin. Okay, so we're told that they died, so they died in Scripture. And they were raised back to life. So that death was not meant to be their final death by God's own design. That death was by God's permissive will to let four miracles take place among these four individuals to show the divinity of the God-man showing through that he has power over life itself. Okay, so why did she need to be fed? Because she was back to life, and she needed to be fed. Even Jesus, uh, who did die once, and who resurrected from the dead, not to die again, during his 40 days of appearing between the resurrection and the ascension, even he ate, not because he had to, but because he wanted to show his apostles that it was truly him. Remember, it was early in the morning, it was still dark, they were out fishing, and as they got, got close to shore, they saw him, they saw a fire going, and he was baking some fish, and he took a piece of it and ate it. Now, he did not have to do that, because he was already in his glorified, risen state, all right? Because his death on the cross was a death, and it was indeed his final death, all right? With these four other human individuals that I've mentioned, it was their death, but it was not meant to be their final death. Their final death had yet to come. All right, and Scripture doesn't tell us when those four individuals finally died, but we know that they died the first time, that it was not their final death. They needed food once they came back to life, right? They needed sustenance once they came back to life, because precisely they were back to life. Jesus, on the, on the side of the, of the shore there, on the beach, with a, a fire going and baking fish, he didn't need to eat in his glorified, transfigured state, but he chose to eat to show the apostles that it was not a ghost. Ghosts wouldn't be eating food. And indeed, he's not a ghost. He wasn't a ghost during his 40 days of post-resurrection appearances before his ascension, 40 days after his resurrection. Indeed, he, he's not a ghost. So he wanted to show them that fact. And the church fathers tell us that's one of the reasons why he, uh, the preeminent reason why he chose to eat in front of them. Great question. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it, Kay. 
Congratulations going out to a longtime member of the EWTN Radio family. Catholic Radio Network is celebrating their 19th year with EWTN. They now serve Mid-America with 15-plus stations in Missouri, Kansas, and Colorado. Congratulations to our good friends Jim and Carolyn O'Laughlin and their whole team at Catholic Radio Network from your friends here at EWTN. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. We could probably still squeeze your call in at 833-288-3986. Kelly is in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, a first-time caller, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Kelly, you're on with Father Wade. Hi, Father Wade. Hello, thank Kelly. You thank you for me. You're very welcome, Kelly, and thank you for your call. Is everything coming through clear? Yes. Crystal. Thank you, thank you. Okay, so Father, I'd like your thoughts on this. Uh, I'm a convert. Some other people in my family are converts. And I, I know from my own experience and other converts that self-reflection is a big part of the conversion process. So right now we have an elderly relative in their 90s. Um, they don't know God. They've never been baptized. They know a little bit about God. But anyway, um, she lacks the ability or is just totally closed off to self-reflection. She's mentioned baptism, but it seems to come um, from a place, not from a place of conversion, but more of a fire insurance policy, if you understand my meaning. You know, they just know they don't want to go to hell, but there's no um, reflecting on their life and really wanting any understanding of, coming to God and what it involves. Am sure. I kind of explaining it well? So we don't know uh, practically whether we should act upon this baptism, but we certainly don't want to force anything on anyone. I, part yeah. of her might be doing it to try and, and manipulate us in a way or please us or think, you know, yeah. it's a bit complicated, and there's a lot of wounds in the, the family. Sure, sure. So you know for a fact, obviously, by the way you have phrased your question, that this relative definitely, definitely is not baptized. Um, So yet you're you're mentioning that she does have times of lucidity where she is lucid. Um, If I were you, I would make a concerted effort um, to visit her often enough to where hopefully you will uh, receive one of these lucid moments during one of your visits with her, where you can ask her, or him, uh, I think you said it's a her, that you can ask her um, if she would like to be baptized. So, you know, you've mentioned some times in the past that, that, that you've questioned baptism and that you've wondered about baptism, and here's what the Church teaches baptism is. And she, I presume she knows you're a Catholic, so you would simply give her a, a simple definition of, of baptism, right? Uh, that would be the main thing that you would want to do. Uh, baptism uh, it takes away not only the original sin, but it also takes away all personal sin while uniting us to Jesus Christ as our head and his people as fellow members of his body, the body of Christ. So it wipes away not only original sin, but any and all personal sin, meaning mortal or venial sin, that we have ever, ever committed. And, you know, you're kind of mentioned a concern that 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 her mentioning baptism might be only as a quote-unquote insurance policy to not want to go to hell. 
So be it. Let God judge that aspect of it. Us humans shouldn't be judging that aspect of it. We simply want to ask the person if they want to be baptized. We simply want to evangelize them about what baptism is. And I'll bet you anything, when you explain to her that it wipes away not only the original sin that we inherit from our first parents, but that it also wipes away any and all personal sin, also known as actual sin, because the person actually commits it, is why it's called actual sin. It's called personal sin, because the person personally commits it. And we're simply talking in regards to actual sin and personal sin about mortal and venial sin. That's all we're talking about here. So actual sin, personal sin, mortal sin, venial sin, all interchangeable synonyms, right? Well, baptism not only wipes away all of that, but it also wipes away the original sin that we are inherited with or that we inherit, uh, and any personal sin that we commit after the age of reason, around age seven, or any uh, actual sin or mortal or venial sin we commit after the age of seven, when we can begin to make moral choices. Explain this to her, and then don't worry about whether or not she's doing it only as a fire insurance policy. Let God handle that. Your goal is to simply ask her yes or no, does she want to be baptized, and to give her a simple witness about the beauty of the sacrament. And let her know, too, that should she be baptized— uh, she's then able to receive the Eucharist and be confirmed on her deathbed as well, uh, or or even before her deathbed if she's not near death's door already, um, you know, and then she can receive the last rites when she is at death's door, right? Uh, a note regarding the last rites at the time of death, last rites includes the anointing of the sick, confession, Secondly, if the person feels the need to go, Holy Viaticum, that's one's final Holy Communion, even if it's just a little fraction of the consecrated host. Uh, Number four, prayers of commendation for the dying, which includes the litany of the saints being prayed over them. How awesome is that, that the Church commands her priest, her minister, to pray the litany of the saints over you when you're dying? How awesome is that, that the Church commands her priest to pray the litany of the saints over you? over you when you are dying. How simply awesome is that? And number five, the apostolic pardon, which doubles as a plenary indulgence at the moment of death, a complete wiping away of any and all temporal punishment due to already forgiven mortal and venial sins. This is what our Lord gave the good thief on Good Friday when the good thief was hanging next to him on his own cross. Jesus told him, I tell you solemnly, this day you will be with me in paradise. Our Lord effectually gave him a plenary indulgence, a complete wiping away of the debt of sin already forgiven that still needs to be atoned for, what we call temporal punishment. So explain to her not only what baptism is per se, it wipes away the original sin and also any and all personal sin or actual sin or mortal and venial sin, but through baptism you're able to receive the other sacraments of the Church. Uh, Confession, Uh, should she commit any sins after her baptism. Confession, anointing of the sick, confirmation, uh, Holy Eucharist. Um, She could even get married in her elder age if she was called to marriage in her elder age. I I doubt the way you're describing her situation that she would, uh, but but even matrimony is open. Of course, holy orders is not, reserved to men alone, but you want to explain to her that the gateway is open to all these other sacraments. Does this help you out? Father, you know, it does, and one thing that's just come to me is sort of my own smallness of heart in this. I'm kind of like the brother or the workers, you know, the prodigal son's brother, where I kind of, part of me wants them to atone for the 
the things they've done. That's not up to me. That's up to God. But uh, no, I want to will. I will her. You know her salvation. So I've just exactly, got to get over Kelly. myself. Exactly, Kelly, and maybe that's why you were meant to call today to to hear the answer in regards to how it affects you more than her. You are not her Savior, and I'm sure if you were feeling that way, it was because out of an abundance of love for her that you want her precisely saved. Nothing wrong with that, right? But remember, you're not her Savior. You are her evangelizer, and you are her prayer warrior, but you are not her Savior. It's like a, having an older husband and wife coming to me and saying, Father, please pray for our 32-year-old son. He's left the church. Well, I, first thing I tell this, this couple, you know, maybe they're in their 50s, let's say, they're mid I say, look, you are not your son's Savior. Jesus Christ is his Savior. You are your son's evangelizer, and you are your son's prayer warrior, but you are not his Savior. So instead, you want to evangelize in a way that's appropriate in regards to your relationship with him, in a way that's appropriate regarding where he's at on his faith journey right now, and his walk of faith. It could be something as simple as inviting him to Mass, to giving him a copy of the Lives of the Saints for his birthday, where each saint's life is maybe a page and a half long, and right on the inside, may this compilation of the Lives of the Saints inspire you to one day return to your Catholic faith of baptism. We love you so much. Love mom and dad. It could be something as simple as that for a birthday gift. Uh, I know a father who invited his son out of the clear blue one time to go to confession with him, one time with him out of the clear blue for the monthly confession that the father regularly went to for the first Friday of the month. The son said, yeah, dad, I'd like to go with you. And the son went to confession in the first, for the first time in about seven years. And it's simply because the father asked him out of the clear blue. Now, there was no falling out between this father and son. They've always been close, but the father had knowledge that his son had been away from the sacrament of confession and thus from the Eucharist for about seven years. Actually, the father didn't think it had been that long. The father thought it had been about four, four to five years. Come to find out, the son tells him, Dad, no, it's been about seven years. I'm so glad you called me. So we don't know what God's going to do again in the sacrament of this present moment. Uh, by our means of evangelization, to inspire a soul on the spot to respond to that evangelization. That's a great thing. So you're right. You know, you're right, Kelly. We're not in charge. Uh, and it's good to be reminded of that. We're the prayer warrior, and we are the evangelizer for the individual, but we're not the Savior. Thank you so much, Kelly, for a great witness call that I'm sure benefited so many other people today listening as well. Be sure to check out Women of Grace tomorrow morning, 11 a.m. Eastern. It's Wacky Wednesday. Johnette welcomes in Sue Brinkman. She'll talk about a New Age guru that has converted to Christianity. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners this day and always and remain with you this day and always. St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. Pray for us on behalf of our host, Father Wade Menezes, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener, Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow. Until then, God bless.